Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and I have a really cool guest on today, David Metzger, who is a nurse and also an author, which you guys know how much I love reading. I talk about it all the time on this podcast, and he reached out to me and was just letting me know that he's a nurse and he's writing a book, and so I was like, yeah, I'll just you know, send it over, and I didn't know what to expect, but then I got to read some of it, and... I really, really, truly love the writing. Hey, David, say hello to everyone. Hey, Tina, it's great to be here. Well, it's really nice to have you. I love to give nurses, fellow nurses, an opportunity to come on and talk about things that they're creating because I think it's great to kind of work with each other and collaborate and just give each other a voice like that. So I just, I think that it's wonderful for nurses to find ways uh, outside of nursing to be creative and do things like this because it's sort of part of self-care. As far as I'm concerned, this podcast is sort of self-care for me and it's a way to do something. It's a creative outlet and it's kind of therapeutic. How did you get into writing a book? Is that sort of what you were doing or how did that go? I mean, you know, what you say about self-care does resonate. Writing about my experiences, taking care of of children with cancer definitely had a cathartic effect on me. It, it, It was really great to be able to intimately talk about these things without a filter. But ultimately, writing this book was a really great way for me to show other people what I see every day, and also to kind of derive some kind of meaning from it all. Um, You know, I've been a pediatric oncology nurse for 13 years, which means I take care of children who have cancer and other blood diseases. And as I take care of these these kids and their families, I'm often invited into their most intimate parts of their lives their joys, their sadnesses, their fears, their hopes. And it's been really amazing to get to know these people in this way and in the process to get to know myself as well. Um, When I became a parent, I became aware of this just crazy intersection between my life as a nurse to these sick kids and my life as a father to two healthy kids. So in my book, which is called Nurse Papa, I explore these roles and how they affect each other. For me, writing Nurse Papa offered a way for me to take some of the wisdom and lessons I've learned at the bedside of sick children and apply it to the way I interact with my kids at home. And as I dug deeper into the writing, I realized that I wanted to be able to describe not only the pain and challenges that these kids and their families face, but also the joy, the laughter, and the transcendence. It's my hope that parents will read this book and be able to filter it through their own experiences and ultimately enrich their own personal journeys as moms and dads. I love that. And that's, you guys, that's exactly the sort of thing that when I started reading the book, uh, that's the sort of thing that I thought, wow, this is wonderful because that's happened to me as a nurse as well, working. And when I have positive experience or when it helps me to be enlightened about a subject or helps me to appreciate what I have at home and and my family, uh, just dealing with my patients and seeing the things that they go through. I sometimes I do want to share that with other people. And this podcast gives me an opportunity to do that. And then you've found a way with your book to be able to share that experience with other people. I think it's important. We learn so much that other people who don't have the opportunity that we do to take care of others, just they can't possibly understand it. So this is a a great way to sort of share the experience with people. And I, I have to say the writing is really beautiful. It's very enjoyable to read. And I was truly pleasantly surprised. One of the things that I noticed that you had said in the book that I kind of wanted to highlight, you said changing my attention in the manner in which I do this work rather than regarding it as being completely outcome oriented has been a life preserver for me in the hospital. And I was like, that line right there was just, that's one of the things that I try to get across to people. Because if you, if all you're worried about is the outcome, it's sort of like, almost like enjoying the journey. But in nursing, it's pretty much appreciating what you're doing, just doing it to the best of your ability and looking at your work as as if what you're doing is helping another person. It may not be that the outcome is what everybody would want it to be. And with you dealing with children, good grief, I've, it's hard enough dealing with adults who some are where they need to be at the end of their life. With children, that's never going to be the case. And I just I don't think I would deal with it very well, honestly, because it's it's a hard thing for me to think about. I, I appreciate pediatric oncology nurses and pediatric nurses in general for being able to deal with what they have to deal with and be so strong. Oh, there was also another line 
um, and I, I had emailed you about this, the opening story that you told, talk about a little girl and the bouncing ball, and you make this humorous little interjection there. And you said, and the young girl and her mother were treated to the unmistakable sounds of a grown man using the restroom because you had left your phone. Your phone on and for the intercom or something, and they could, they were able to hear. Yeah, that, that happened. And you know, it's, so it's funny, Tina. You know, people have this image of just such incredible sadness and pain that happens in on a pediatric oncology ward, mm-hmm. and that is so very true. There is an indescribable amount of of bad things that happen, and I try to describe those in my book. But behind that, there's a whole world of happiness and joy. You know, ultimately, these kids have cancer, but they're still kids. And, you know, kids just have a way of bringing out the best part of people and of themselves. So you you interact with these children and their families. And even though they are battling with a, a very serious disease, they're still living their lives and they're still moving forward. And that's it's a really beautiful thing to be able to be part of and to learn from. I, I would the coping mechanisms, the coping skills just blow me away. It's you do have a lot to teach to people. If coping skills alone, I, I feel like you know reading this book kind of will help people understand, you know, how to be able to deal with difficult. Not just you know you're dealing with your job and and with some serious illness with death and that sort of thing. But I would imagine you could take those coping skills and use them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's not just, I mean, this book was definitely geared towards parents who have their own challenges at Mm -hmm. home. I mean, you're, you're a mom, you know how incredibly difficult it is to take care of healthy kids. It's, I mean, it's definitely the biggest challenge I've ever faced in my life. And I've definitely learned my weaknesses, weaknesses and learned a few of my strengths, but like, to be able to um, filter these experiences, taking care of sick kids and find out how I can be a better dad to my own children has been really amazing. And you know, to your point of being a process-oriented person rather than a product-oriented person, that also help, helps at home as well because there's so many problems that I cannot fix with my children. And I think when I was a new dad, I was all about making things work, fixing, moving forward, but I realized that, you know, sometimes there's no way to move forward. There's a way to be. And if you're always focused on the end product and making everything perfect, you're going to fail. You have to live in the moment and figure out how to be your best person and your best parent with what you've got. And that's you know one of the biggest takeaways I've come away personally from this experience of writing this book. And it's been really helpful for me as a nurse as well. Well, you guys that are listening, we have... Obviously, a lot of nurses listen to this podcast. A lot of nursing students listen to this podcast, new grads. And so a lot of them are in kind of that stage of becoming also new moms, new dads. And Mm -hmm. so I think that if you guys are listening and you're in that situation, this would be an excellent book for you to consider reading just because you're going to get that perspective. When is it going to be coming out, David? So I'm still working on um, those details with my publisher. I hope that it will be available in the next month or so or a couple of months. Right now, if you are interested in the book, you can visit my website, which is nursepapathebook.com and sign up for my mailing list. And that will give you updates on publishing, but also um, provide you a wealth of really great content, essays about parenting. And I also have a, a column on the site called Dear Nurse Papa, where parents can write in their questions about parenting and you know, just being a person. And I uh, write back to those people and I publish their letters on the site. So it's it's a really great resource for for parents and anybody who's really interested in, in topics like this. One of the, the biggest themes in the book that there are two parts of me. There's the hospital part of me and there's the the home part of me. And then there's this mythical character who I call Nurse Papa, who is this combination of the two characters. And he is perfect. He does everything right in the hospital. He does everything right at home. But what I learned is that Nurse Papa is a complete illusion. Mm-hmm. He doesn't exist. And it's really about finding out who you are professionally and who you are personally and being your best person there and learning from your mistakes. Well, you're going to come back on the podcast too in a, in a, a few months whenever the, the book is kind of out and we can kind of talk about all this again and 
maybe get some feedback from some people who've been able to read it. Um, so I'm excited about that. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you so much. But we're also going to have, we've got a couple of good nurse, bad nurse stories, of course, because this is good nurse, bad nurse. So we've, of course, got a couple of stories. And I've had several first responder people, EMTs and paramedics that have messaged me and asked me to do a story about an EMT. And then most recently, when someone messaged me and asked me that, I thought, I thought I did one. And I went back and I was like, I haven't done one. So, and so we've got two good EMT and bad EMT stories. Very, very different stories. Oh my gosh. Yes. Very, very different. Because as we know, and and we say all the time on this podcast, their medical professionals are inherently wonderful, giving, caring people. And that's the vast majority of the people in healthcare, or we wouldn't be in healthcare. But just like every other profession, you're going to have those outliers. You're going to have people who don't make good decisions, who are selfish, who are just plain not good people. And that's, they're, uh-huh. they're going to get into healthcare as well. And so we definitely, on this show, what we what we like to say is we want to illuminate the good and, and talk about the good that, that people do. But we don't want to pretend like there's no bad that goes on. So we shine a light in the darkness and just kind of um, expose those things that can happen. We can certainly learn from those things as well. Yeah, I think another takeaway is that it's not black and white. There are people who have their faults and are also wonderful caregivers and really good at what they do. And then there are other people who are not good caregivers, but are really wonderful people as well. So, I mean, people are very complicated. And I think in this first story, we definitely see some very twisty motivations. Oh my goodness. Yes. And it's, it does, it gets, it takes some turns and I'm just, it's, it's kind of shocking really. So first of all, just to kind of talk about EMTs and paramedics, because I don't know if you like this, but I was a little confused about the difference between the two. I I was Mm -hmm. like, an EMT versus a paramedic are, do, are the, is it interchangeable? Are they the same role as one does one have more responsibility than the other? And what I found when I was kind of, of course, it's different state to state, mm. what their responsibilities are. But for the most part, EMTs have less training usually than a paramedic. A paramedic is actually more like a nurse. They have all the responsibilities in most states. It, it, it definitely differs state to state, just like nurses differ sometimes state to state. But their scope of practice is almost identical to that of a nurse. And I think that probably shocks people more than anything because I I didn't I didn't realize that but they can do everything that a nurse can do in some states and more yeah I mean I think I think paramedics they're also on the ground and a lot more than nurses are depending on what kind of nurse you are and paramedics see so much trauma so as far as their skill level I mean as in resuscitation and emergency medicine they're they're probably much more equipped than most nurses you know. Yeah, their education as far as like, there's not a bachelor degree as far as I know. I think there are some places that offer an associate's degree, but even then that's not necessary all the time, but it's more extensive education and training for sure. Uh It's like one to two years as opposed to an EMT is like maybe six months for their, but still they have a lot of responsibility too. EMTs can obviously do CPR, they can apply oxygen, glucose for diabetics, that sort of thing. They're not allowed to break the skin usually. There's some exceptions to that, like using an EpiPen, that sort of thing for it. And the thing is, this is, these are emergent situations. So the things that nurses learn and when we go to school to get and get a degree, all the extra classes that we take that feel... (laughs) like they're really not necessary. I do think it gives us a layer of knowledge that help us understand what's kind of behind the process. Just for instance, taking microbiology, understanding how bacteria works, understanding how viruses work, understanding, you know, that whole level of germs and infection. It definitely helps us in dealing with patients. Paramedics don't have to be worried about that. So they, uh-huh. they're worried about stopping the bleed. They're worried about, you know, bringing them bringing someone back, doing CPR, doing, they give blood, they, anything we do, they actually intubating, they can intubate. Uh All in a a quickly moving vehicle as well. Yeah. So highly skilled, highly trained, highly intelligent people. So having said that, that's who we're going to be talking about today. And this is actually not just one EMT. This is a handful of EMTs. This is several people and involved at all different levels of this whole situation. 
first of all, Catherine Novak, um, she was an EMT. She's a, a devoted mother, very modest and cheerful person. She was a volunteer at heart. She volunteered at her children's school. She volunteered just in her community for an ambulance service to go and just kind of help there, I guess. Maybe she was trying to feel it out to see if that would be something she was interested in. And while doing that, she met a man by the name of Paul Novak, and he was an EMT at the time. This is a long time ago, back in the 90s when they met. And so the two of them really hit it off, and she did become a, uh, an EMT, and they got married. So that sort of begins the story there. So EMTs, David, are very, I guess I shouldn't lump everybody and paint everybody with a broad brush, but in general, a lot of them like the adrenaline rush, you know, they Mm -hmm. like. So David, or excuse me, Paul was definitely like that. He he was definitely an adrenaline junkie. He liked to ride his motorcycle really fast. He just liked a fast paced lifestyle. Catherine, on the other hand, was kind of the opposite of that, even though she was an EMT, she didn't necessarily like the adrenaline part of it. I think she's probably more of the per- a person who just wanted to take care of people and help people. So they moved to an area called Narrow, Narrowsburg, New York, and very, very small town northwest of Manhattan, population 431, very, very tiny little town. Uh, that's, there's more, more people now on my street. <laughs> There, I mean, that's that's a small town. I feel like I'm from a small town, and that's um, that's a rural. I, I guess I you would more call that rural than anything. A, a township, the kind of place that doesn't have a mayor. Yes. So they moved there, and as you can imagine, Paul, who's an adrenaline junkie, is not going to be as happy, I guess, living in that setting. Catherine loved it, and she thrived there. You know, like I said, volunteering with. The, you know, they had two children, so she's volunteering at their school, and she also will babysit other people's children. She's just that kind of person. But Paul still needed the adrenaline, so he continued to work in the city and would drive two hours one way, so, you know, four-hour trip. Well, it was about an hour and a half, I think. But back and forth, I mean, that's every day that you work, that's a lot, and he got to where he would just spend the night in the city instead of driving you know, back and forth. So that's not going to be good on a marriage. I mean, you and I both know that if, I mean, if I were to just decide, I'm just going to take a travel position and just, you know, leave and not be home very often, that's not going to be good for my marriage. Yeah. I mean, in some cases, absence does make the heart fonder, but this was definitely not what happened in this case. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, if, if I do travel and come back home, I definitely have missed my husband and that's that's true to an extent, but over a long period of time, it's mm-hmm. it just doesn't seem like it would be very healthy. And also, I think that Paul just didn't see that lifestyle that where his family, you know, that rural living in the middle of nowhere kind of lifestyle, it was just not for him. And so he wanted, I think, to stay away. So one night, Catherine gets a phone call, or uh, the phone rings in the middle of the night, and she answers the phone. And there's a woman on the other end of the line. And this woman, her name is Michelle LaFrance. And she is a young EMT that works with Paul. And so Catherine confronted Paul about it. And, you know, it's basically like uh, there's really usually only one reason why a young woman would be calling in the middle of the night. And he admitted that, yes, he had been having an affair with her. And he just said, I I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be with you anymore. And he wanted out of the marriage and he left. That's kind of where their marriage was when all this sort of took place. So he goes back. Yeah. I wish this is where the story stopped, unfortunately. Yeah. It does not. No, because Paul was not only was he an adrenaline junkie, he was also very greedy and a very uncaring person. I think that a lot of times people in healthcare go into healthcare because they want to help people. But then there are also those people who go into healthcare because they think they're going to get all the excitement. And, you know, they, they, like, they like the adrenaline rush that they get running to an accident and that sort of thing. And I think that's why he was in it. He was clearly not 
giving and caring person um, based on the things that he did. So according to a neighbor of Catherine's and also a good friend of hers, she said that Catherine was actually so concerned about her own children's well-being. Because you can imagine now he's moved into the city, but he still has his children. So the children are kind of going back and forth with him and Catherine. And this girl is going to be there. And she didn't want her children to suffer because of this. So she actually would went to lunch with Michelle and sat down and just had a conversation about her children and kind of just to get to know Michelle so that it would maybe put her at ease about the person who's going to be spending a lot of time with her children and making sure that she knew how to take care of the children and that sort of thing. I feel like that just sort of speaks right there to what kind of person Catherine was. No, she sounded like a really caring mother. And um, and as you'll hear, she didn't get what she deserved no. at all. No, not at all. So one morning at 6.30 a.m., a different neighbor woke up and found Catherine's house engulfed in flames. So she called 911 and the firefighters come in to Catherine's home. It's in, of course, it's deep in the woods. There's no, there are no neighbors very clo- you know, close by. But by the time uh, the firefighters get there, it's too late. The house is completely demolished and actually had collapsed into the basement. So... It took them a while going through all of the wreckage to, to find her, but they did find her. And she was in the basement lying on her back. And the, one of the things that the police said is that the investigators was that her, the position that they found her in lying on her back is not really consistent with the way you would usually find someone who was killed in a fire because you would think that they would have been trying to get out. And so they would have been on their stomach. Um, or at the, you know, at the very least, maybe in a fetal position, but not on their back. It doesn't really, they didn't feel like that that was consistent with someone who was trying to leave. So. Yeah, one of the many suspicious signs in this crime. Mm-hmm. Also, sadly enough, and you guys, I, I've had somebody tell ask me before, to, tr- to do trigger warnings for animals. So I will say if you are an animal person, you know, yeah, skip ahead. So in the basement close to where her body was found, there was the family dog and the dog was locked in the kennel and there was smoke in his lungs. And that the dog died of smoke inhalation. But the thing is, when they did an autopsy on Catherine, it didn't show smoke inhalation. So... Dead people cannot breathe in smoke. That is true. It is very true. Also, dead people don't bleed. And the autopsy showed that she had three dislocated ribs and a strange pooling of blood. So again, it just looks, these things are kind of adding up. All those little suspicious findings. So hemorrhage around a fracture, that's that's making them think, okay, she's injured and bleeding at some point before she died, right? Mm-hmm. And th- so when I when I was reading this and and looking through and actually watching videos and there's all kinds of information out about this, I thought because you know when you first start reading some of these stories, they don't tell you exactly what happens, and I thought, oh, okay, so she probably was down in the basement to get the dog. Like the the she realized the house was on fire, woke up in the middle of the night, and went downstairs to get the dog because she was thinking of the dog, of course, instead of herself. And then just didn't, wasn't, you know, was overcome by smoke inhalation. And then that's what happened. So that's how I was sort of thinking could have been a plausible explanation, I guess. Sure. So the investigators, of course, they start looking at all the evidence and they start thinking, okay, is there an arsonist that's out there? Is this, is there some sort of pattern? Has this happened before recently that maybe would be a possible suspect? Or is there maybe a sex offender traveling around the area? Is there something like that going on? And the reason they set the fire is to try to burn evidence. All the usual things that you would expect investigators to look at. And they really came back empty with that. There really wasn't anything that stood out. And of course, we know the first person really that investigators are going to think of is the significant other, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, that that person, right? Ex-husband. Ex-husband, for sure. I mean, that's, yeah. 
especially they weren't yet quite divorced. They had separated. So there's still a lot of ugly, toxic stuff going on and the separation mm-hmm. of everything. And it's just, that's definitely going to be a, a, the first place that they look, no doubt. So Paul says he was at his apartment in New York with his children two hours away when the fire started. And his girlfriend, Michelle, confirmed that, yeah, he, he was here all night, never left. So the, the police are like, well, that's an ironclad alibi right there. You can't really argue with that. So my thing is when I think about that is, wouldn't you think that someone like your significant other, or your spouse or your girlfriend or whatever, wouldn't you think they might lie for you? Or I don't know, or maybe you could sneak out of the house or sneak out of the apartment and do something and come back and the person never know it. I don't see how yeah. that's ironclad myself. No, absolutely. It seems like there's as much failure by the detective work in this case um, as anything else. Mm-hmm. They didn't really dig deep into what happened here and until much later when they when the evidence was overwhelming. Yeah, that's how I felt about it too. I did, it did feel as though there wasn't a large effort being put into to figuring out what really happened and looking at evidence. They did give him a polygraph exam and his answer showed no deception. So he passed that and the case goes cold. So, yeah, which makes me think that we need to re-examine polygraph tests. I mean, once again, because, you know, as we'll soon discover, Paul wasn't being exactly truthful, but he, you know, passed the tests, which maybe there's a personality um, type that they can convince themselves or at least convince a machine that they didn't do something when they clearly did. Yeah, I would think, and we've talked about this um, on this podcast before too. I think that people who who can be so malicious and so evil really to do something like this to another human being can definitely sit there and control themselves and to not have their heart rate go up or whatever it is that they're detecting when they're doing a polygraph exam. I think that people like that are just cold and calculated and manipulative. And (laughs) if they can manipulate a person, they can manipulate that machine if they know how it works. That's just, I don't see why we're still relying on those, honestly. No, it's, it's really a flaw. Yeah. So less than a year after Catherine's death, the grieving ex husband collects a nice big insurance payout. $300,000 for the house and $500,000 for Catherine, which I understand that he was still on the policy and maybe Catherine hadn't had a chance to change some of that stuff. Because one of the things that happened is when they first separated, apparently he was living away and then he started, he was going kind of back and forth almost, which is kind of weird. But she was letting him do this, kind of go back and forth. And that is when he took out a life insurance policy and she knew about it and agreed to it. So I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to explain the actions of people. I think she really trusted him clearly. And yeah, I, and yeah. I'm sorry. Um, and I think we're, we're talking about somebody who's a, a master manipulator, not just of, of his deceased wife, but also of the people who ultimately helped him carry out this crime. And mm-hmm. that's where the the real horrible aspect comes in because he didn't just kill his wife and murder his his children's mother, but he he made other people do it with him. Exactly. So when he gets this insurance payout, he moves to Florida with Michelle. They bought a home on the beach with a pool, very nice home, especially considering how he where he came from. It was a, a completely different lifestyle. And it had been almost four years since Catherine died. Really, the cops never suspected anyone other than Paul. So they really weren't doing anything with the investigation. And they said at that point, they didn't have a solid lead. So nothing probably would have happened except that Michelle decides that she's going to leave Paul because he, guess what, started having an affair with someone else. Which, Big surprise. Right, true to form. I mean, this is what happens. Someone who will do this once will do it again. Someone who needs the adrenaline rush of a new relationship or whatever, he's going to, you're going to get old at some point and he's going to move on. And that's exactly what happened. So she leaves him, then gets in another relationship with a police officer 
And then starts kind of spilling the beans that she kind of knew about this happening. And her new boyfriend says, you know, you should go to the police about this. So she did. And she's, she really spilled the beans on it. I mean, just told the whole thing to the police. She said he was researching on the internet, which it's another thing. Like why, I guess maybe, I don't understand because usually if you're researching something on the internet, you can't really get rid of that. So you would think they would have confiscated or, you know, got a, a warrant for his apartment and for his, any computer, but uh, who knows, maybe they did that. But he was going to use chloroform on her, according to Michelle, and then leave her in the house and burn the house down around her. So she was supposed to die in the fire because of the fire, not because of an injury. And what happened is he went there, went through the basement in order to set off the alarm. And when he's, he set off the alarm, she went downstairs to see what was going on. And that drew her down. And then he was, of course, waiting on her. And he tried to put a cloth over her face that had chloroform on it that he mixed himself at home. And it didn't work. So she's fighting back with him. And he, he told Michelle that he fought for 45 minutes with her. And never said anything to her other than Catherine said, why are you doing this? And he said, it's for the kids. So Michelle is telling the police all this. And of course, they're just sitting there, I'm sure, like taking it all in. Like, wow, this is, it's kind of unbelievable, really, that he would have even told all of this stuff. He's, for, for someone who obviously is intelligent, he's really not at the same time, you know? Yeah, this was a, a very poorly thought out crime yeah. And I don't know how one even goes about making chloroform. I don't want to know either. Please don't Google it because it's not Don't Google. I've already said like just researching these stories. If anything ever happens, like I'm going to, I look so guilty because I'm researching these stupid stories. So one of the things I've learned from doing these stories is you definitely don't want to be researching like how to make chloroform or something like that. That's never a good idea. But that's apparently, you can find out because that's what he did. Although... Maybe not because it didn't work. So whatever he did, I don't know if he mixed it wrong or, or what, but it didn't work on, on Catherine. No, it sure didn't. So Michelle said that um, he ended up, he told her that he ended up using Catherine's sweatshirt to strangle her. And that's actually how she died. And then, of course, set fire to the house in order to cover everything up. But Michelle tells the police something that's totally new. Of course, they, they probably suspect that Michelle knows something about... she. It, they have to know that she at least suspects that he did it because she knows he's not at, at the apartment all night, right? So what they didn't know that Michelle told them is that there is a completely other person, completely different person involved in this whole thing. So they were really shocked to find out that another, yet another EMT was actually involved. His name is Scott Sherwood. And this guy, he is described by some people as like a big teddy bear. He's six foot seven, like gentle giant kind of person, real emotional. They said he would cry a lot at work, like while he's working. I don't know if things just got overwhelming to him, but they said he just kind of had a lot of emotional problems and was very easily manipulated. Uh I'm sure Paul saw, saw that and took advantage, you know? So Michelle says that as far as she knows, Scott was left in the car and Paul went to the house, but but Scott was actually the one who drove him to the house because Paul didn't want to drive his own car because he was afraid that it would be tracked and that you would be, they would be, the investigators would be able to tell, you know, that he had, had driven there. So he pulled Scott Sherwood into all of this. And she said that Paul told her that Scott was someone that he could manipulate and that he did ask him to drive him there and told him exactly what he was going to do. So apparently Scott knew what he had in mind. Tina, were you at all confused why Paul even made all this effort to bring other people into his scheme when he easily could have done this all by himself and then have no witnesses? Mm -hmm. 
Um, cause it was ultimately, it was his, the people who helped him, who ultimately turned him in. Right. Uh, you know, some, it, I, I stopped questioning this stuff because you can never, and I, I've, I always say, like, I'm not in the business of trying to give potential criminals advice, but at the same time, you, if you are thinking about doing something like this, you're crazy if you think you're going to get away with it because there's way too many details to think about. And so people, the smartest of these people make dumb mistakes, just stupid things that in retrospect, you're just thinking, why would you have done that? And so Paul definitely seemed to make a lot of those though. And this is one of those, like why in the world you would tell your girlfriend all of this stuff? Why would you tell all these details? Even if you needed her to kind of give you an alibi and just say I was there, whatever. Why in the world you'd say all these details and then Scott, exactly, borrow his car and drive it. Like, why would you have him drive there? I don't know. It's kind of hard to understand some people and their thinking. But I also think some people are so arrogant. Like, I think he was so arrogant that he really felt like if that he could force them or keep them from saying anything. Like yeah, I think be, you're right. You know? That would be a good business. So wouldn't it, Tina, to give advice to budding criminals on how to best carry out their crimes? I could do, I could do it because I, <laughs> I feel like... But well, I, if nursing doesn't work out. Yeah, but the thing is, it's, that's my ultimate advice to people is just don't do it because... Yeah, I do have a lot of things like don't give confessions to jail cell, you know, <laughs> partners. You definitely don't do that. But that's um, classic. That's the that's the obvious one. But they keep doing it. They do it all the time. <laughs> Gosh. I think I think they just want to tell somebody. Yeah. You know, people don't ultimately don't want to be alone, and maybe that's why Paul brought in these other people. You know, he's a sociopath. I think we can agree on that. But oh, yeah. even sociopaths get lonely, and they feel like they need somebody else to share in their misery. So that seems like what happened with Paul and Scott and uh, and Michelle LaFrance. For sure. And Scott, so the police do go and arrest Scott. Okay, they pick him up and he absolutely just tells them everything. He doesn't even hesitate. It's as if he was like, I was waiting for you to ask me because it's been, I've, it's been killing me all this time. And he just, just told him everything. He didn't even Mm -hmm. ask for an attorney. He just kind of like, you know, so he, Scott said, yeah, I was the one that drove and Paul told me what he was going to do. He told him, Paul told him, I want to, I I need to kill her. And he said that Paul told him that the reason he was going to kill his ex-wife was because he didn't want to be like Scott. Basically, he's like, I don't want to be like you. Uh, divorced and broke. And so that's the reason he he was doing it. (laughs) I don't, I don't know. The whole thing is crazy. Like, I don't understand why if Scott is an EMT, if you're intelligent enough to be an EMT, I'm really not, I'm sorry, but I'm not buying the, the whole, I was just an innocent person manipulated thing because you have to know what you're doing. You're smart enough to pass uh, the test to be an EMT and to work in that capacity you're smart enough to make the decision to say, no, that's not right. You can't really kill your wife just because you don't want to end up like me. I don't know. I just didn't really yeah. buy that. I mean, it's it's strange. And I feel the same way about Michelle LaFrance. She was very culpable in this murder. She helped plan it and she got off scot-free, basically. Um, oh, yeah. But what was really interesting is how the article talked about the culture of EMTs and paramedics, how they see so much death and pain and injury that in a way they almost become desensitized to it. So they're able to kind of place their own actions in this crazy world and somehow justify them, which uh, honestly, I, I I think it's a cop-out, but I, I do see it happening. Um, and I, I think it's quite possible that that's what occurred, that they kind of just emotionally shut themselves off from what they were actually doing, was which was murdering a, a perfectly nice person. Yeah. Michelle says that Paul convinced her that Catherine was a bad person, that she was not a good mother and that he had to kill her because of that, that for the children. He, Uh she says he convinced her of that. I think that, you know, if she met with her and had lunch and that sort of thing, I don't know that I buy that Michelle really believed that. 
I think that it's more likely that she knew about the insurance policy and that they were going to get $800,000 after she died and be able to move to the beach yeah. together. That's just my opinion. <laughs> no, I think you're right. And um, she got off. Well, yeah, because unfortunately, you know, the police were not investigating this. They were not trying to find any other clues. I feel like if they had just put a little pressure on Scott or Michelle, they probably would have gotten a confession from them a lot sooner and possibly would have gotten more. Both of them would have probably gotten more time, I would imagine. Uh But they gave her full immunity and walked. She walked completely scot-free for giving that confession. I don't know. I just don't know. I guess maybe, maybe it's worth it because otherwise both of them would have just, everybody would have been scot-free, you know? Well, Scott wasn't free. (laughs) Yeah, Scott was definitely not. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) So Scott got a year in prison. Oh, is that it? Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he got a year. Paul, they arrested him. Of course, he denied it. He didn't admit that he did it. He says, no, that was an accident. I was nowhere near there. He even had his 13-year-old daughter testify for him. She cried the whole time. She was trying to testify for him and defended him, just really gut-wrenching for for the jury to watch. But they still didn't buy it and convicted him of first-degree murder. And the judge sentenced him to the maximum sentence, which is life in prison without parole. And then Scott Sherwood, he did plead guilty to conspiracy to commit murder, but because he cooperated, he only got a year and a half in jail. And didn't Paul try to blame Michelle and Scott Sherwood for this whole thing? That is true. He tried to pin it on the two of them saying that they colluded together, but they had no why they had no reason. Yeah, no motive at all. No motive whatsoever because they weren't getting an in insurance payout. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it just gets more and more ridiculous. Yeah. So anyway, at least he is in prison and he will be there forever. So that's one good thing that came out of it. It's very unfortunate that this had to happen to you know this wonderful lady and uh, that there are people in the world that are like this, that are so selfish and greedy that they would just sacrifice not only another human being's life, but the mother of their children. I can never understand how people uh-huh. can be so cruel to their own children. Because how cruel is that to take their mother away from them? Yeah, it's, it really shows shows you what kind of person Paul was. But what's really interesting about this story is that you, you hear other stories like this and people will say, oh my gosh, I can't believe that he would have done that. He was such a nice man. But that's not really what happened here. You know, if they went back and interviewed people who knew Paul um, after this all came to light and People were not at all surprised that Paul would be capable of this, which really goes to show how how much kind of mental power somebody who like Paul can have over other people and get away with a crime like this. Yeah, really. Because uh, one of the videos that I was watching with this, they had like psychoanalysts on there. And one of them, they, they seem to be, to me, very sympathetic to Scott Sherwood. Uh-huh. And they, they almost seem to, act like it wasn't his fault that he went along with it because he was brainwashed or manipulated into doing it. And I just think, you know, that's, I don't think we should give people a pass that easily. Yeah, I, I, I understand that someone like Paul would definitely seek out somebody like that who they think they could manipulate. But at the same time, we have a responsibility to recognize right from wrong and know that you can't just go along because they could have stopped this. They could yeah. have they could have told someone. And even if Paul, even if he didn't get arrested, just the fact that they told and it, it was being investigated, Paul would not have gone through with it, of course, because then they, everyone would know if she comes up, if she ends up murdered, that it was him, right? Yeah. And at the very least, you could say, ah, murder is not for me. Maybe I'm not going to participate in this. Yeah. And Paul more than likely would not have committed this murder if he didn't feel like he had the support of two Mm -hmm. accomplices. Yes. And also if they had said no, you would think that they, that Paul would be thinking, okay, well, if I go through with this, now I've got these people who, who were not going to be accomplices. So they could tell someone if he brings Scott along to be the driver, 
then he's probably thinking, well, you're involved in this just as much as I am. You would go to prison too. So that's a motive for Scott not to talk. But if he says, no, I'm not going to do it, then Paul's think probably would be thinking, oh, I've Maybe I can't go through with it because now I've got someone who would who would say, oh, yeah, he asked me to help him with that. And I told him no, you know. Yeah. Take home lesson. Just don't murder people. Exactly. <laughs> Good lesson. <laughs> so um, for people that are listening to this, like I, I know I laugh all the time at like, inappropriate times. And I say, have to say this every now and then because sometimes I get emails from people and they're just like, I can't believe that you laughed about that. And I'm just like, that is seriously a a coping mechanism for me. I laugh all the time when at completely inappropriate times. I have to be really careful sometimes at work uh, because I have no, I, I just don't know. I'm just, I'm laughing. And it's not that I think it's funny. It's literally a coping mechanism. So for you guys that are listening, if you hear me laughing at something, I would never, ever, I don't think it's funny, of course, that this woman lost her life. I would never laugh about something like that. Will I laugh at something like that, the the person who who did it, the, if they do something so stupid or just, yeah, I mean, I laugh about that stuff. I don't like to take myself or life too seriously. I'm sorry. Yeah. No. And as a fellow nurse, I know exactly what you're talking about. You, you simply cannot be involved in all the pain and sorrow that in the world without, you know, turning a happy face towards it. And I think it's a really healthy thing to do to be able to reflect on something with some humor. Yeah. <laughs> So if you guys, if you don't like it, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I hate to say if you don't like it, don't listen. But at the same time, that's they just... definitely listen. That's what this is. I mean, that's just this podcast. So I'm sorry. I guess I shouldn't apologize for it because it's just who I am. But anyway, I definitely don't mean any, any disrespect whatsoever to any victim or family member or anything like that, of course. So having said that, we have a pretty cool, good EMT story. This is the kind of thing that I think of when I think of EMTs and paramedics, people rushing, you know, to a situation like this. I, when I found this story, I, I could not believe. First of all, I was just like, okay, I was looking for a good EMT story. This is definitely one. I mean, a Staten Island man deliberately uh, let a train hit him, actually. So th- that's a horrible thing that happened. And clearly this person was struggling with some mental health issues. There's no doubt about that. But the really good thing is it this had a good outcome. So this EMT, Francis, Law, Francis Jost, comes as a first responder. And many times some of these hero stories are like people when they're off work, but he was working. But mm-hmm. at the same time, not everybody, some people are quicker on their feet or able, you know, they're a little more skilled than others or, you know, able to just um, step in and go above and beyond. Well, when he got there, Francis just got there to the scene. Actually, he said even before, he heard the uh, a police officer on the radio say, I found the arm. And so he knew there was a loss of limb there. And immediately before he ever got there, thought ice. That's what he was thinking. So I feel like, I mean, he's such a, a good EMT because he's, it's like his brain just works like that, you know? Uh-huh. So that's what you would hope as a nurse that you do on the floor. You know, these things, something goes wrong or something happens and your brain actually thinks of the right thing to do at the right time. That's Which what, occasionally ice is the answer to that on the floor. It is the answer. <laughs> ice is the answer a lot of times, isn't it? <laughs> so he actually tells another EMT, go straight to this bar called Hot Shots Bar. And they go straight there, pick up a bag of ice and then go to the station and put the arm on ice and then take it straight to the hospital. And they says that they were freezing in the truck because they had the window, I guess it was in the winter, and they had the windows open, the AC blasting the whole ride. They were freezing cold. And they got to the hospital. They didn't wait for the ambulance to park. He said he jumped out and ran uh, ran in, pointing at, at the bag, and they were calling for ice. And one nurse looked in and said, no, ice, it's already iced already. So can you imagine like, hey, they knew what to do. Yeah. I mean, this is a horrible story, of course, but it is, you know, did have kind of a happy ending. I was kind of wondering, you know, how you think a man who returns your arm, you know, because usually if you return somebody's wallet or keys on Craigslist, you get a thank you or, Mm. you know, a Starbucks card, but you know, what do you do for us when somebody returns your arm? I don't know. That's a 
that's a whole other level right there. And unfortunately, yeah. this man was clearly suffering from extensive mental health mental issues. Problems. He's actually, this is not the first time that he had done this. He had been uh, intentionally struck by trains at least twice um, before. So, and he had, had lost three fingers in one incident. So it's just unfortunate that whatever this person, and, and in our country, we definitely do not take mental health issues seriously enough. Yes, for sure. And I think that was kind of an untouched part of this story is, you know, the follow-up with this man, why he did it and, um, you know, what his motivations were and, and really like kind of a bigger picture of, of how people are hurting mm-hmm. and often try to harm themselves. But um, I could not, I actually did a little research and tried to see if they were successful in getting his arm back on or really what happened to him. But um, apparently a man losing his arm is much more exciting than a, a man getting his arm reattached because there was no follow-up stories on on what happened to this guy. Yeah, I, I was kind of curious about it too. I wonder a lot of times people who are homeless are suffering from mental illness and he could have been homeless and maybe not easy to track down if maybe sure. if even if a reporter wanted to follow up, they may have had a difficult time with that. And of course, with HIPAA, the hospital would not be able to give that information. So yeah. anyway, I, I thought this was really good thinking on this EMT's part. I hope that this person was able to get the help that he needed after this. Maybe he's just reaching out, you know, maybe he needs, this is the uh, attention getting behavior trying to get help. But yeah, well, that's quite a call for help. Oh, I know. And that, you know, there aren't a lot of resources in our country. And I think it varies state to state. And the state that I live in, there really are very, very limited resources for people suffering with uh, mental health issues. And it's just so frustrating to me. Yeah, absolutely. Because everybody suffers for it, not just the people that are going through it. Our whole society, you know, has to suffer because of this. And I don't understand why there's not more that's done for people and aren't more resources, but that seems like it's the first place that's cut, you know, whenever they're doing budgets and that sort of thing. It's very true, Tina. Well, I guess that's it for this week. We um, That was a really good episode. I appreciate you for coming on and and talking to us about your book, and, and we'll have you back in a, a couple of months to talk some uh, more no, about it. Yeah, no problem, and it was, it was a real pleasure to talk with you about these stories and to talk about my book as well. Remind everybody where they can find you. So you can go to www.nursepapathebook.com and uh, find out about the book and all the other content on the site. And um, please do sign up for the mailing list so you can find out when the book is actually going to come out. So you guys know you can find us at goodnursebadnurse.com. And we have some changes that are coming to our website pretty soon. We're going to have some new merchandise. You, you know, right now we have these little mugs. For those of you who are watching the um, the YouTube, we have the little mugs, the Good Nurse, Bad Nurse mugs. But we're going to be changing the the style of those and the t-shirts and the, all that stuff. So changes are coming for our website. Just keep on the lookout for that. And of course, you can find us on Instagram at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse Podcast or GNB and Podcast on Facebook. And by the way, I also really, really appreciate the people who send me these emails and messages on Instagram that are so encouraging. You guys are so incredibly sweet. And I just, it's overwhelming sometimes. And I I know that I can't possibly respond to everyone, but just know that I do read every single one of them when they come in. It's literally getting really difficult to, to respond to all of them. Um, I'm not saying I'm not going to respond to all of them because I I want to. But if I haven't for some reason, know that I read it and know that it it touches my heart every time I get, get one. And I love it so much. And thank you so much for being so sweet and encouraging. And I also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse, please.